we're ready. That wasn't two minutes. <coughs> that was fast. Okay, but anyway, welcome to uh, the Sutta class. And uh, today, I wanted to carry on a little bit from yesterday's discussion about the five components of existence. I Sometimes I have a conflict when I teach because many of these suttas which I have collected together and abridged when necessary, I wanted to do this especially for the Anagarikas, novices and monks. I just really hope that each one of you can kind of appreciate that these are quite deep. And if they're quite deep, just take whatever you can from them. They're all accurate and true, but anyway, we try and just teach them as best we can. But so today I wanted to kind of try and make it a bit more simple by choosing some of the suttas which explain what I said yesterday in a more comprehensible way. Let's see if it can be done. So, the first little quotes which I'm going to talk about, here it is. It's nice and simple. The Anatta doctrine, <laughs> the non-self. But you know, sometimes the Buddha did realize that just being too analytical uh, doesn't help, and sometimes just having good similes is much more helpful. So this is the Anatta doctrine. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya, the Kanda Samyutta. And it's a Kanda Samyutta, the components of existence Samyutta. And it's a lovely simile for the five characteristics of existence. Suppose that this river Ganges was carrying along a great lump of foam. These are using similes, the best the Buddha could uh, imagine, because the Ganges was the main river where he lived and taught. A person with good sight would inspect and carefully investigate <coughs> that great lump of foam, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, and empty. For what substance could one find in a mere lump of foam? I'm sure you've seen lumps of foams on the river after a heavy rainstorm. And sometimes they may appear to be something solid, even appear to be like a body or a fish or something, but it's just foam. So too, whatever kind of form or body there is, the first component of existence, whether past, future or present, one's own or someone else's, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near. You inspect and carefully investigate it and it would appear to you to be void, empty, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in form? Even in your body, 
Now, sometimes I mentioned I had the good fortune to go to autopsies. And sometimes if you go to an autopsy and you see the brain taken out of the skull, and the brain is so small, it's an ordinary brain, it causes all these problems. It's such a tiny little lump of uh, stuff. That's, that's what my first um, reaction when I saw the brain taken out. Goodness gracious, is that it? <laughs> How many of you have seen a brain? Excellent. How many of you have a brain? <laughs> Sorry. That's the, the form. So, so I thought, kind of thought it was insubstantial, nothing much there, so tiny. Suppose it were raining and big raindrops are falling and a water bubble arises and bursts on the surface of the water. You see now it goes plop, a little bubble appears but very transient and then vanishes. A person with good sight would inspect and carefully investigate it and it would appear to them to be void, hollow and momentary. For what permanence could there be in a water bubble? So too, whatever ex kind of experience, here the Vedana, there is, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, you inspect and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to you to be void, empty, momentary, just like the water bubble. For can anything constant be found in experience? Constant. Answer no. Now, the first part of the next simile doesn't make much sense to many people who don't live in places which have three seasons. But the Buddha said, as was common in India at that time, suppose that in the last month of the hot season, around noon, a shimmering mirage appears and a person with good sight would inspect and carefully investigate it and it would appear to them to be void, hollow and illusory. For what reality could there be in a mirage? So too, whatever kind of perception there is, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, you inspect and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to you to be void, empty, illusory. For what reality could there be in perception? And of course, many psychologists do some amazing experiments in perception. And they're sometimes used on 
uh, comedy shows because that's how illusory they can be. Have you seen that, um, that scenario when somebody goes up to somebody else to ask them a simple question? I remember these, they did this at Harvard University. A student, this was all filmed. So this uh, African-American student went up to a guy and said, oh, do you know the way to the uh, psychology labs? And before the other guy could answer, so these two workmen, very rudely, carrying a big door, went right between these two. And so, you know, they lost eye contact for a, a few seconds. And then the guy who asked the question asked it again, do you know the way to the psychology lab? And the guy said, yeah, it's over there. And he didn't notice the first guy who asked the question was an Afro-American male. And the second person who asked the question was a white um, Chinese lady or whatever. They changed the people around. And the guy who was asked the question didn't perceive it. They didn't notice that something had changed. Because the most important thing they were paying attention to was just the question, not the person who asked it. It's very funny to see that. And they were trying all sorts of uh, different combinations, the first person and the next person who asked, and to see if the person being asked could actually understand it. They couldn't. They thought it was the same person, because all they heard was the question. And that's <laughs> a lot of times with perception, we remember what was important to us. And we <laughs> One of the great examples of perception, and how it's kind of untrustworthy, there's one of my friends who was a fellow monk with me when I was young, uh, his name was Venerable Adnan. I'm not sure if you ever met him. He was American. He was in the Vietnam War. And he actually joined up the US Marines to fight in the war. He wasn't drafted, he volunteered. I said, what did you do that for? He said to get more tough. When he was young, he was in a street gang, gang in the city of Buffalo. Uh, up in New York State. And he told me, he said, in those days, he went around with motorbike chains, playing for keeps. He was a very nasty, violent, rough young man. So joining the US Marines would just make him tougher. And so he was one of the, what they call grunts in Vietnam, you know, on the ground. But he had enough smarts in him he was a radio operator. And that kind of saved his life. In one of the big firefights in Vietnam, he wasn't a good man at all at those times. One of his friends in his little company of troops uh, got a bullet in his foot. And that was regarded as a million dollar wound. It would not kill him. He maybe have a little limp but they would be cashiered out of the army with a lifetime pension. And so this Ananda, before, he wasn't a monkey obviously, he was standing up laughing at him. 
while this man was in pain. He'd just been shot. And because he was laughing at him, losing his awareness of what he was doing and where he was, he caught a bullet in the back of his head. He was shot. Not enough to kill him yet, but because he was a radio operator, they could radio for evacuation by the helicopter almost immediately. So he said, you know, he's still aware and he was taken in the stretcher into the helicopter and then the helicopter got hit by uh, some sort of bomb and he was thrown from one end, from the stretcher to the other end of the helicopter and had shrapnel inside of him as well. And anyone who was, you know, in those 60s, you know, the last thought he had was, it's all over now, baby blue. That was an old sort of Bob Dylan song. And then he was unconscious, and he woke up in the military hospital, the base hospital, and he, great pain as they were shaving his hair to do the operation on his brain. And then when he came to, uh, all those bandages were on him, and his eyes were covered with bandages, and they said the part of the brain they had to um, cut out was a part to do with vision. And so he said, when we take, you know, you're a Marine, you're tough, when we take those bandages off, you will be blind. That was what the surgeons in the army told him. And he, for days he was just laying in the bed, just with bandages all over him, and he just made a resolution. He was tough, he wouldn't mess around. He said, if I'm blind, I will commit suicide. He doesn't want to live a life uh, as uh, someone who can't see. And when they took the bandages off, he could see. It was like miraculous. And he thought, wow, you know, there is vision there. And so he had a pension from the US Army. It was $1,000 a month then. He didn't have to do any work. He just lived a life. He said he was so elated that he could see perfectly. But then he didn't have to work. He was just playing around with his friends. They were playing a baseball game, just in the park, nothing serious. And that's when the batsman hit the ball high in the air in his direction, and he went to catch it. And then the ball disappeared, which was weird. It just vanished from existence. And a minute or two later, it just appeared again. Maybe a minute was a bit long, maybe a few seconds. It had vanished from existence, then it came back again. That's when he realized he had a blind spot. It's wonderful the way he described it, because it was from his own experience. I always wonder what a blind spot is. Is it you see part of the, uh, what you ever seeing is black and everything else is there, but this place has just got no sight at all? He said, no. What happens is your brain makes up what it expects to see in the area where it's blind. That's how perception works. It's a mirage. Some of it may be real, but because the ball was flying through the air, 
and you know, he hadn't done that too often, the brain was too slow to actually make that picture of a ball flying through the air. And that's when he realized what uh, blind spots are in your vision. And that's the same with your perceptions. What you perceive you think is real. Is it? But I don't want it to cause you sleepless nights, but sometimes we make up some or all of our perceptions. <laughs> so anyway, he became a really good friend after a while. He was really tough, but the story behind him, because, you know, he's a very wonderful man, that we had to do this, you know, we always do chanting, and it was a special long chant we had to do, you know, which is like for the blessings of houses and things, in Pali, and sometimes in Thailand they have this introductory verse. It's called inviting the heavenly beings to attend the chanting. And because it's a forest tradition, the forest tradition is usually very boring. We're not supposed to smile. Ajahn Chah always did. And when you do the chanting, it's supposed to be in a monotone. You're not supposed to make it musical. I'm not that musical, but I did used to sing in the choir when I was about 10 or 11. <laughs> but anyway, the... Actually, why I used to sing in the choir? My parents were very poor when my father was still alive. And, you know, because I had a decent voice, you know, at primary school, they said, if you want to, you can, uh, you can sing in the church, in the church choir. I wasn't really interested in Christianity, but I wasn't wise enough to know much at all. But the one thing I found out, if you sing in the church choir, on like Saturdays, they have weddings. So you can imagine, you go to a wedding, you volunteer to sing in the church choir on a wedding. And I was very smart, very mercenary, because I've been this cute little kid you know, only 10 or 11 years of age. And I would always, like, smile or look at the bride. <laughs> because at the end of the service, I would always give tips. <laughs> so he looked at her and smiled like a cute little cherub singing at her wedding. So she'd give you an extra tip. Now, for many people, that money wasn't much because my parents were so poor, that was my own pocket money. And I never told my parents what I was doing in church. I'm just going to church. Okay, please, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and they never knew it was a nice little earner, as they said. I made a lot of money in that church. <laughs> I didn't believe what I was singing, but nevertheless. <laughs> so because... So I worked with that perception 
to try and create the perception of a cute little Christian kid. Was that fraud? Probably, but... <laughs> anyway, it's my growing up. So anyway, the perception. Whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, you inspect and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to you to be void, empty, illusory, just like a mirage. With the mirage, is a beautiful simile, because there's something there. You're not imagining that there's light coming into your eyes, but you're just misinterpreting it, giving it a meaning it doesn't deserve. And that's what I was saying yesterday. That's a conditioning thing. Gives it a meaning which it doesn't deserve. Next simile. We've done three of the five characteristics of existence. What's the next one? Otherwise known as? Yeah, very good. As a teacher, you always must check that your uh, students are paying attention. (laughs) Suppose a person needing hardwood would enter the forest taking a chainsaw. Now this is where I do deliberately change a few of the similes. Because they said taking a, a two-handle saw. No one in their right mind today would go into a forest taking a two-handle saw. That's too much hard work. They'd take a chainsaw. So not really changing the simile too much. Just making it a little bit more uh, easy to understand. There they would see the trunk of a large banana tree. Straight, fresh, without a fruit bud core. They would cut it down at the root, cut off the crown and unroll the coil. As they unrolled the cord of a banana tree, you've all seen a banana tree before, I hope. As they would unroll the cord, they would not even find softwood, let alone hardwood. A person with good sight would inspect and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, and without a solid core. For what solidity? could there be in the centre of a banana tree? So whatever kind of will there is, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, you inspect it and carefully investigate it. As you investigate them, It appears to you to be void, empty and hollow. For what core essence could there be in volition? Now that was a simile of the banana tree. But I must admit, in my opinion, uh, the monk of Venerable Gunaratana, Banteji is his usually known nickname, still alive over in US, in Virginia, he came up with an even better simile. Similar, the onion. Because if you peel an onion looking for the core, you peel it and peel it and peel it 
and you never find any because there's nothing solid in it. Moreover, the more you look for it as you're peeling it, the more you cry, <laughs> suffering. <laughs> and the best part of that simile, look at the word onion. It goes on and on with an eye in the middle. <laughs> That is very brilliant simile, that. So, the last of the five components of existence, consciousnesses. Suppose that a magician would perform a trick at a crossroads. It's weird, but in Pali, all these magicians or tradespeople would always do these things at a crossroads. I think because it was a crossroads, maybe would people get off one cart and had to go in another cart. It was like, like a village, a place of commerce, commerce, it seems. And even the Pali word for like business was like wanija. That was like a marketplace. And from wanija, they got the term banyan. The reason why we call that tree a banyan tree because when the British Raj went into India, they had this huge market under banyan trees, simply because they had the shade there. And many people could do their business uh, under the huge shade of banyan trees. And that became the word for market. For, no, it was mar called market first of all. So a banyan tree, you might as well call it like a market tree. That's what it meant in, in the original Sanskrit Pali. So anyway, in those days they would do it at a crossroads. Suppose a magician would perform a trick at a crossroads. A person with good eyesight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to them to be void, hollow, and deceptive. For what truth could there be in a magical illusion. Now I think you all know that tonight is Halloween. And of course, because my interest in the meaning of life was not just with you know, the world of science, but also with the world of the supernatural. They called it supernatural, but it was real. Just what was going on? And one of my friends will be at Singapore at the Global Conference in December. That was, um, what's his name again? Bernard Carr. A very interesting man. Bernard was a close friend of Stephen Hawkins. I mean, I'm not just saying a really close friend. He appeared or rather someone playing him appeared in the movie about the life of Stephen Hawkins. And uh, Bernard was also one of my close friends, because he was the first Buddhist I ever met. I was a Buddhist when I was about 16, but I didn't know what to, what to go, or you know, where to go, what to do. I should have been more clever and just looked in a telephone directory, be for Buddhist and go to the nearest temple. But I didn't figure that one out. <laughs> it's only 16. So when I was 18, he went up to Cambridge. They had these societies fairs. 
so that all these different clubs and societies, things like fox hunting, the hare and hounds society, and then most was Cambridge, snooty. <laughs> I couldn't believe there was a hare and hound society there. You know, what idiot would go on a Sunday just on a horse, you know, chasing this poor little fox? But anyway, they did that. And there was also many other societies, organising your social life. And of course, I saw Cambridge University Buddhist Society. I couldn't believe that. This was in 1969. And so I just went straight up to the counter. I want to join. I wasn't asking any questions. I want to join. And the guy behind the counter said, look, you don't have to join. It's like, come and see. Ehipasiko. You know, come and see first of all, then if you like it, you can join. I said, I like it. I want to join. <laughs> I said, look, you don't have to. Wait. And I did have much money, but I took out a pound note, slammed it on the table, join me. <laughs> so he wrote down my name in the book. And that was Bernard, my old mate, first Buddhist I ever met. But anyway, it wasn't just we shared interest in Buddhism and, and theoretical physics. He was also a member of the Cambridge University Psychic Research Society. We would go around hunting ghosts and supernatural stuff. And so, a question, or just extending your arms. <laughs> I thought that was fascinating. Not scary. Is these things actually real? And that um, the the leader of that group was uh, another. Uh, he was a lecturer in one of the university faculties, Dr. Tony Cornell. And he had a weird sense of humour, just like me. And he also had his business card. Dr. Tony Cornell, chief ghost hunter of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. <laughs> and that was true. He was a London um, Psychic Research Society, sort of regarded that he was, you know, funny but fair, had great credentials, and whenever there was a haunting in England, which happened quite often, he'd be the one sent, usually, to investigate. And I remember reading these articles because the newspapers would contact him if there was a haunting and he would go and investigate it. But he said he would never go alone. He would always go with a professional magician because the magicians knew all the tricks of actually how your perception can be distorted. And that's exactly what magicians do. They distort your perception and so you hear or see things which aren't really there. And he said that they pointed out so much supposed hauntings which weren't real. But somebody cleverly organize something or set something up and when a person was looking for a ghost, looking for hauntings, they would actually see it, or imagine it or whatever. Basically they'd make it up. And to give you some more advice on what Bernard used to do, that is one of these famous experiments 
And this, I love saying this, because this is a story which gives you an idea what perception really is. You know, he was also a scientist, you know, very highly regarded, you know, a professor. You know, he uh, would be on the board which give other people PhDs. So, he was, uh, one of his friends claimed that he could find the secret of levitation going against the laws of gravity. And because his friend was also a very highly respected scientist, he said, I'll give a demonstration, but only to other experimental physicists, not to students. So he said he could do this, he put his reputation on the line and gave a demonstration. That was in Imperial College in London. And it was filmed. It was photographed. They had so much equipment there. UV cameras, infrared cameras. This was a really top university and this guy was a professor himself. So we get all this stuff in the lab. And just to prove that it wasn't just previously set up to deceive them, this uh, scientist, a friend of Bernard's, brought a flower pot into the lecture room. Simple flower pot. We don't have a flower pot. You, you know what flower pot with flowers in it? <laughs> I suppose a flower pot does have to have flowers in it. Okay. <laughs> I know that many people say I'm allergic to flowers. I'm allergic to flowers, but there's one flower I'm never allergic to. That's that cauliflower, yes, thank you. <laughs> you know, once, I'm glad that sort of the supporters appreciate the humour. Once they got all these cauliflowers and they put them on the main shrine at Nolamara. <laughs> I said, thank you, and I'm not going to sneeze. <laughs> so anyway, brought in this flower pot and put it on the table. He said, look, there's no strings attached, there's no funny business. And we're now going to levitate this flower pot. The cameras are there. You've got wide eyes. You're experimental physicists, trained observers. Please look. And he said, in order for this flower pot to levitate, I do need your help. You know that in um, Hinduism and also Buddhism, we have this holy word, Om. I want you all to chant, if you don't mind, chant the holy word, Om. And all these crusty old professors, I would have loved to see this, but I'd have spoiled it, I'd have just laughed. All these old professors, the leaders of faculties, we're in the chairs there, all going, Om, 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 as best they possibly could. And that's when the flower pot levitated. No one touched it, it just rose above the table. It was filmed, photographed. It actually happened. Imperial College in London. 
in front of many very well-known professors. And then it went down again. And they asked, they stopped doing the OM thing, and they asked, what do you think of that? And of course many people said, that's amazing, we've never seen anything like that before. There was a couple of professors said, what are you talking about? That flower pot was on the table all the time. They showed them the video. That's a fake video. It's been you know, adjusted by whatever. The photographs, those are fake photographs. You know how we doubt these days the information even on videos? You always used to say that a picture uh, speaks a thousand words, but these days you can change pictures to almost mean anything. And they said, we were there, we were watching. It never rose in the air at all. And then the whole point of the experiment was revealed. Underneath that table was a huge electromagnet. But to make the magnet work, to lift up that flower pot, you needed to turn on a very large current. And when you turn on a current of electricity that large, you can always hear the humming of the current, which is why they needed to all stay om, 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 <laughs> to hide the secret of the experiment. It was done just through electromagnetism, nothing more. It was a magical trick. But the whole purpose of the experiment was not to do magic. The whole purpose of the experiment was to show that trained physicists, very well-known experimental physicists, people with a large reputation, which is why they only had physicists there, no students, they could not believe that anything could levitate. So their perception was blocked. It can't happen. So it wasn't even allowed to come to this, what many people think was bare perception. When you perceive something, it is a, uh, like a, a mirage. You think you're seeing it, but what you're seeing is sometimes things are blocked. Things which is too difficult to accept cannot be seen, cannot be felt, cannot be heard. It's just too impossible. That's why you block it out. A brilliant experiment. And because, you know, that was you know, as much scientific proof as you could possibly have, it just shows you how even perception is sometimes unreliable. What you perceive is not always real. I, I kind of like that. So anyway, that was perception. When consciousness, you know, even a consciousness relies upon that perception. But suppose a magician would perform a trick at a crossroad. A person with a good eyesight would inspect and ponder it and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, and deceptive, for what truth could there be in a magical illusion? 
So whatever kind of consciousness there is, remember the six types of consciousness? What are they? Yes, sight, hearing, smell, taste, consciousness. When you hear something, are you sure you got it right? You really heard that? How many times do people argue? That's not what I said. That's what you heard. Who's right, who's wrong? Even consciousness gets it wrong sometimes. A magic trick. Far or near, whatever type of consciousnesses there are, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, even as the consciousnesses you experience in the deep meditations. You inspect and carefully investigate it, and you appear to you to be void, empty, and deceptive. For what authenticity could there be in consciousnesses? That's the word of the Buddha. That challenges. That's you know, one of the reasons why. A good example, I said this is even what happens in the deep meditations. Many people, actually this, this is when they die. They see that beautiful light, they go towards that light, they enter that light, and they come out afterwards. This is, was the case of Anita Murajani. And I don't know how this world works, but it's a really weird world. Because her GP, her GP, in, I was in Hong Kong at the time, was like this a Westerner. Actually, was an Australian, Dr. Brian Walker. He wasn't uh, doing the operation, but of course he knew everything about her. And during the operation, the doctors thought that you know, they'd lost her, that you know, she went unconscious, she had an out-of-the-body experience. And as soon as she came out of that out-of-the-body experience, and back, you know, she was alive, quite surprising, when she came out of the anaesthetic, the first thing she said was, I'm cured, the cancer's gone. And they said, the doctors thought she was just crazy mad, because the cancer hadn't gone. And they just did one part of the cancer operation. But she said, no, it's gone. And she was true. And it just, the rest of the tumours started disappearing. And she explained what had happened was that I found a cause of my cancer. And she said it was because that for so many years, she was a very successful woman, but she said, for all my life, I've been trying to please others. And that stress of trying to please others was the cause of my cancer. She had a nice family, a husband, and doing well in her business. You know what she means? Always trying to please another person, trying to be a better person, trying to do better, trying to get better meditation. That stresses you out. And for her, that was the cause of her cancer. And she did recover. The interesting reason I tell that, or two interesting reasons I tell that story, is 
that um, when she died, temporarily, and she went up towards that light, when she entered that light, she called it union with God. She said, there's so much love and beauty and bliss. And if you ever had a child, you can understand why that's one way of perceiving it. And I'd be quite firm here, it's not a God, but it's so blissful. And it's like you're not there anymore. And it's powerful. And that's actually what mystics in the Middle Ages, Christian mystics, when they got into these deep meditations, people like St. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, that's what they managed to do. That's the way they'd interpret it. You don't need to criticize it. But when she came out of those deep meditations, you get insights. And her insight, the most important thing for her, was the cause of her cancer. She saw that. That's exactly the reason why she had that cancer. So when she came out, she wasn't trying to please anybody. Cancer disappeared and she made full recovery. But I mentioned her GP's name, Dr. Brian Walker, because he eventually moved to Australia, to Western Australia. And he's now, uh, he started a practice in the town of Serpentine. He's actually my GP. <laughs> Legally he is, I never go and see him, because I'm pretty healthy. I don't want to please anybody. I tell bad jokes trying to get rid of you so I can have some peace and quiet. <laughs> I don't know why this beautiful story, the GP is just down the road. He sometimes comes here on the weekend whenever he gets a chance, but he also did a stupid thing. He actually stood for Parliament, the local Parliament, he got elected. So he hardly had any time. He still does uh, work at the, um, the clinic in Serpentine. And he says it changed his whole life. To see something like that, and see what happened. But anyway, that's the nature of consciousnesses. My goodness, I had another couple of things to do. But anyway, any questions on that so far? The similes. I'll do another couple. I'll do something else, and then we do for questions. Yep. The relation between it is the Buddha said one of the most powerful statements. You cannot have the coming and going of consciousnesses without the other four candors. If there's consciousness, there has to be the will, perception, experience, but not always the form element. You go to the formless elements. But nevertheless, they're usually there. Consciousness is not independent. It cannot live by itself. That's why independent origination, the Buddha said, now what is the, the cause of consciousness? And he said it's the objects of consciousness in brief, that the nama-rupa. Without nama-rupa there can't be any consciousness is. Without consciousness there's no nama-rupa. 
And his simile was like these two sheaves of reeds, which the farmers used. Once they you know, plough the fields, they get the, uh, for him anyway, in India, the rice. They've got to dry that first of all before they thresh it and get the rice buds off and the rice seeds off. So they put those sheaves of reeds leaning against each other to dry in the sun. And that was obviously just what happened in India. So you'd see at that time of the year these sheaves of reeds, or of rice basically, straw, supporting each other. And he said that's like consciousnesses and the objects of consciousness. When you take one away, the other one falls off. So when Nama Rupa ceases, consciousness ceases. When consciousness ceases, Nama Rupa goes. So said the Buddha. Please, I apologize if you find this difficult to accept. My job here is just explaining how the Buddha taught. But anyway, this might reassure you. This is... Just wait for a few seconds. Did actually prepare something today. Usually I like teaching just, just without any preparation, but I thought that I should prepare something. The two extremes and the middle doctrine. This is the Kachana Gota Sutta, very important sutta, because later on in the history of Buddhism, there was, uh, well, what's his name again? Um, one of the, they call him a Mahayana monk, but then this Mahayana monk, was it Nagarjuna? Before? He was Nagarjuna, I think. He decided that people were going in really strange directions in Buddhism. He knew his suttas, and so he started the, what do you call the, the Majjhima Nikaya. Not not, not Majjhima Nikaya, that's a set of suttas. The, the Majjhima doctrine. And that became really famous in Mahayana. But was it really Mahayana? Sometimes I ask. But anyway, this is a sutta it was based on. This was to Kachana. Venerable Sir, says Kachana to the Buddha, it is said right view, right view. In what way is there right view? And the Buddha replies, the world, Kachana, you know, people, mostly depends on a duality, upon a theory of existence or a theory of non-existence. Now there's something or there's nothing. But one who sees the origin of phenomena as it really is, you know, how things come to be. Just, no, I'm not talking about how worlds come to be, how this moment comes to be, how this idea, how this thought, how this Vedana comes to be. There is no idea of non-existence of the world. I think it was George Bernard Shaw who uh, argued with this English philosopher, I think it was Hume, who said everything is illusory. And he said, I refute you thus, and kicked him. <laughs> he became quite famous for that. He said, that's real, that's not an illusion, it hurts when you get kicked. <laughs> but anyhow, um, you can't say that there is nothing, non-existence, because you see the origin of phenomena as it really is. 
and there is no idea of non-existence in this world. And for one who sees a cessation of phenomena as it really is, there is no idea of existence of the world. Most people are attached to one of these wrong views, existence or non-existence. And often you have these two views and there's always a third view which people don't see, which is a process, a cause and effect. Something causes this, arises for a while and then disappears. And to me that made a lot of sense because that's what I understood from theoretical physics. We were looking for a fundamental particle from which everything is built, or a few fundamental particles from which everything is built. But they keep on changing. They're never permanent. Every part of this universe has a lifespan. It doesn't go on forever. Even as stable things like electrons. You know, sometimes they call them they have a half-life, which means a probability in that time, 50%, that they would just disappear. So everything, every particle, every stuff, every force, doesn't last forever. So it's not, it doesn't exist, or persist is a nice way of looking at it. So most people are attached to one of these wrong views. But one with right view disengages from such dualistic theories about my soul. You have no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only suffering arising. What ceases is only suffering ceasing. Your knowledge about this is independent of mere belief and acceptance. In this way there is right view. Phenomena is one extreme. Phenomena do not exist is the second extreme. Without veering to either of these extremes, the Buddha teaches the Dharma by the middle way. It's the second form of middle way in the suttas. And that middle way is with avijja, delusion as the cause, volition arises. With volition arising, a consciousness, with consciousness arising, nama rupa, is what is called dependent origination. It's a beautiful sutta because that important teaching of the Buddha, dependent origination, it's a process, not a thing. When one thing arises, another thing arises. Cause and effect. And when things cease, other things cease. And I'll just say this in my own words because it keeps it um, uh, simple for you. But this is the Agi Vacha Gota Sutta. And this Agi Vacha, uh, let's say Vacha Gota, he was a wanderer. And he said, well, once you're enlightened, what happens to you? Where do you go? once you're enlightened. Yeah, we know you, you, you can't say you really die, you're not getting reborn, but where do you go? And the Buddha gave a simile. And I've adapted that simile. He said, uh, I'll use the Buddha simile, it's easy. No. 
But anyway, he said it was a, you see a grass fire. We know a grass fire is burning in front of you. Yeah, of course I would. Instead of a grass fire, I use a simile of the candle. You see the candle flame, it's lit in front of you. What is that flame dependent on? It's dependent on the wax in the candle, dependent upon the wick, and dependent on the heat. Those three come together and you have a flame. And if either one of those causes disappears, the wax is exhausted, it's all used up. Or the uh, wick is all burnt through. Or the heat, someone blows it out. If any of those causes happen, and one of those necessary causes is extinguished, where does the flame go? If it's been a good flame, will it go to be happy ever after? If it's been a bad flame, will it go and join all those bad flames in heaven burning people? And the Buddha replied to Wachagota, or Wachagota replied to the Buddha, that question makes no sense. The flame doesn't go anywhere. It's just three causes. One of those causes disappears, and so does the effect. It doesn't go anywhere. It stops. What is the word for stopping in Pali, in that context? Parinibbana. In Nibbanas. It ceases. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't get reborn. It ceases. Just like a candle. And at that point, I always pay homage to Elton John. When he sang, when Lady Diana died, she was like a candle in the wind. He didn't know how accurately he understood Buddhism. (laughs) (laughs) Any question before this evening while it's still fresh in your mind? It's now five o'clock. Going. Have you got a question? Okay. Going. Going. Gone. Sadu, sadu, sadu.